Speaking of church holidays, I have a uh, little confession that I'm going to start with. Um, I became a Christian at around 24 and uh, got quite involved with church quite quickly. And since that time, approximately around once a month, I'm going to say, sometimes more often, sometimes less, I have a recurring nightmare. Literally, as soon as I got back into church, it started, it still carries on. It's, it increases in frequency when I'm more pressurized, as these things tend to. So here is my nightmare. I'm on a church holiday. I can't get away. I'm going to miss my whatever mode of transportation I need. I can't quite find the, the things that I need, the people that I need, the whatever I need, the luggage, whatever. And I can't leave. That's it. Some people have falling, some people have flying. My friend Alice dreams she's a giant every now and then. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Nope, not me. Just on a church holiday. Hopefully the more I experience healing experiences like last weekend, that might go away, I don't know. Who knows? Only my boring psyche. We're returning to the series on the I am statements that Jesus made from the Gospel of John. John was written in about 100 AD uh, during a time of increasing friction um, between the new Christian church and the Jewish people. John takes more artistic license than the other Gospels because he is writing with an explicit purpose. He is declaring to the Jewish, Jewish readers, the Jewish community, that these stories, this Jesus, the ones that you know, fulfilled all your ancient prophecies, was born and lived to show you this because he is the Messiah you, you've been waiting for. In chapter 20, near the end of the book, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, i.e., I, John, have included what I'm including, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and uh, that by believing you may have life in his name. John doesn't line up with the timeline of Jesus' life from the other Gospels. He omits some of the really, really big scenes, and he mentions stuff that isn't mentioned anywhere else. He's perfectly happy to move things around chronologically, in fact, at the start of chapter 11, which is the um, I am statement we're looking at today, it's found there, um, the first part of the story is um, where he says of Mary, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped her feet with his hair, which Eden mentioned a minute ago. But in fact, John hasn't told that story yet. He tells it a chapter later. Um, but he knows that all of his readers know all of these things very, very well. The whole book is written with a post-resurrection point of view. And what John is trying to do is provide new meaning to these familiar stories. As well as the seven I am statements that we've been working um, through, there are also seven signs, seven being the, num the Jewish number of perfection and completion. This I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life, the one that we're looking at today, accompanies the seventh and final sign in the book, which is the point, completion. The most important sign of all, Jesus defeating death, raising Lazarus out of the tomb, his empty tomb, anticipating Jesus' empty tomb to come. It's certainly the biggest, most problematic sign and statement to all of us. So let's look at what happens. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus receives a message from his friends, Mary and Martha, that says, Lord, the one you love is sick. There it is. 
John labors the point that his family um, are Jesus' friends and he loves them. And he makes this point over and over again. Some historians believe that this family were um, wealthy benefactors of a ministry to the poor in and around that area. But we don't know loads about them other than that Jesus loved to come and visit them and he did so often. Elsewhere, they're called beloved. And no one else really gets that title apart from a disciple. The sisters knew how to reach him because they've sent him this message but they also know that he'd want to know this. These are Jesus' people, and one of them is dying. Jesus importantly responds in verse 4, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. It's an odd beat, isn't it? He's heard his good friend is sick, and he stayed where he was for two more days. There is only one point John is making. Jesus has heard from his father, and he's being obedient to it, to what he's heard. And he knows what's going to happen. The next bit, we're going to skip past. It's all John building the drama. There are already threats on Jesus and the disciples' lives because of the outlandish statements that he's been making and signs he's been performing. And the disciples are scared. Bethany is just a short distance over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, where all of his enemies are, or most of them. And there'd be no sneaking in to an event like the one they're going to. They're going to a funeral, but not the kind of funeral we would have likely seen. Not a solemn, quiet, reserved affair. Family ties were strong in this culture. Friends and family would have come from all around to come and mourn. They'd have hired musicians just to add to the drama, In fact, Jewish oral law encouraged public display. They'd be wailing. They'd be beating their chests. This would be a very, very loud and public occasion. The disciples know this, and they know that that their enemies are definitely going to be hearing about the fact that they've returned to the area. So verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four is very significant. The Jewish belief of the day was that the soul remained around the body, which is why the mourners kept watch of the dead body, hoping to re-enter it for three days. But on the fourth day, the day that coincidentally decomposition sets in, the soul departs. John wants us to be very clear. Lazarus is dead. Properly, completely, as a dodo, dead. When... So, going from verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. We're not talking about the last days, Martha. We're not talking about an unknown future anymore. I'm here. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm coming to change this. Then he says, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After this, she, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. There's something about this bit. The teacher, 
He shouldn't be calling for her as a woman, and he shouldn't have been her teacher. Women couldn't have teachers. But he loves her. He is on his way to raise her brother from the dead, but he needs to see Mary. He wants to know how she is. And it's so reminiscent of that word, sorry, I didn't catch your name, that you shared, just the, he wanting to know the peop- how the people that he loves are. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Deeply moved and troubled is not right at all. Talk about the emotional repression of our English-speaking forefathers. In the classical Greek, this word denotes the snort of a warhorse. It denotes outrage, anger, fury. It's not weepiness. It's not the weepiness that we feel when we see something sad on telly. It's not tears just welling up because other people are crying. And the word for spirit spirit here isn't holy spirit. It's the word for deepest self. This is an outburst of rage and pain from the deepest level of his being. And there is an incredible thought here. Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. His father's told him. He knows what he's going to go and do. And it's so nuts because I can only imagine what I I would feel in that moment. I would want Mary to know. Don't cry. Stop crying. Everyone stop crying. Guess what I'm going to do? Guess what I'm going to do? He's not going to be dead. Wait, come and see. Come and see. He doesn't need to mourn with her. But Jesus is perfect. He is perfect love and perfect relationship and perfect empathy and perfect being with. And his friend is hurting and he can't bear it. He can't bear her grief. It makes me wonder how much grief he'd ever felt before. Because he loves her. He's unable to just move past her. He feels her pain. And it's so unbelievably helpful for us, I think, to have this picture and to actually understand it. Lest we think he's mad at Martha or Mary or their mourners for not having more faith in him or that he's mourning what's about to happen to him, or that he's mad at his father. Why didn't you tell me to get here sooner? Jesus is, at the depth of his being, raging about the pain that his friends are feeling. We're so flipping uncomfortable with pain in our culture, aren't we? My very brave friend Lauren recently shared a post on social media about her experience of two miscarriages last year. It's something we so rarely talk about openly, isn't it? Despite the fact that almost half of women who are engaged in the process of having a baby will at some point have a miscarriage. In fact, in the UK, your doctor will strongly advise you not to tell anyone apart from your partner that you're pregnant, lest anyone would have to know about your pain if you lost the baby. Until you're about 12 weeks, I think the advice is. We don't want to see each other's pain. And what happens when we live like this, when we keep it all a secret, is we lose all of this opportunity to share pain that godly relationship, as modelled by Jesus here, lets us experience. I know that for Lauren, 
speaking about her pain in this thing and her experience with this thing unlocked it, the opportunity for a lot of other women to talk about that. And I know that it was a really healing experience for a lot of people. I recently had an incredibly, I don't know what the word is, privileged experience of standing with someone who I had never met before that moment, who um, moments before I walked past her had just received a phone call to say that her dad had died all of a sudden, just that moment. And I found it deeply moving to share that with her and to have no words of any value, although I confess I clumsily did try to reach for some, but just to put an arm around her and cry with her. I found her raw and real and free expression of emotion extremely humbling, extremely beautiful. And we just don't see this very often, do we? We don't see and feel each other's pain because our culture tells us to keep it hidden away, to keep it private. Not because we don't all experience it, but it's such a cultural no-no to be open about it. It's one of the reasons that you will hear us say very often that you are welcome to cry in church. It's, supposed, it's one of the things that we're supposed to be, a place where pain is released. And so never, ever, ever feel ashamed of crying in here. This is the, one of the things that we're here for. But that's not quite the point I'm making. Jesus shows us very powerfully how to share pain with each other. Even on the cusp of the most dramatic sign he will ever perform, he stops to see her pain and feel her pain and rage about it the way that he does about all death, all instances of death, all outworkings of death, all pain, all sickness, all poverty, broken relationship, abuse, hunger, all of the ways that we're living in the broken human condition that we were never intended to experience. I think it is a little bit weird for us a lot of the time, to think about Jesus having beloved friends, this deeply special bunch of people in Bethany, to think of him healthily relying on someone, spending as much time with them, getting solace from them, sharing himself with them, just living in fantastic relationship with them. I don't think that it's a coincidence that John's first sign at the wedding in Cana and the last sign here happen in the company of Jesus' closest personal friends. Jesus needed friends. Jesus loved his friends. And I'm not sure I've ever really thought about this before this week. I've definitely thought about Jesus' imperfect relationship in the Trinity, the, the God part of Jesus, this perfect love that they share where there's no you know, insecurity about their position. They just want to love and glorify each other, and it's this perfect representation of what love looks like. But I've not really thought about the human side of Jesus needing relationship before needing, enjoying, and modeling perfect relationship. Relationships are hard. I say this with the fortune of, of having grown up with a very loving family and with the wisdom of a nearly 13-year marriage to a very good man. And I say this if I'm being... <laughs> Did you want... <laughs> I feel like that was enough of a little affirmation for you. Was it not enough? Was it? <laughs> now you're going to feel a bit silly. Because what I'm going to tell you about next is that this week 
has been the most, I'm probably in the top three weeks anyway, the most conflict-riddled week of our entire relationship. Is that fair? I think that's fair. We've had some... <laughs> it's not been a good one. It's been a really, really hard one. Because loving each other well, like Jesus loves, requires feeling all of our feelings perfectly and making room for each other to do that. And we can't do that, I'm sorry to say. None of us can do that perfectly. I've mentioned an early intervention parenting protocol that I'm pretty passionate. I'm trained as a um, group facilitator and I love putting these courses on. Um, I've already mentioned it a couple of times. I don't bang on, just so you know, about parenting and children just to fulfill all your deep stereotypes about what a lady pastor's like. I love children. I love my children. I love a few others too. I'm pretty bothered about being a good mother, but I'm not particularly gifted with children. Um, Enneagram type four over here. I know there's a couple else in here. Yeah, I know, I see you. I know who you are. The thing is, the ideas of this um, way of looking at humans is not just applicable to the parents of young children. They're applicable to anyone who has ever been parented in any way, which I'm pretty sure is the vast majority of us here today. Because we weren't perfectly parented, I am aware there are a number of parents in this room, I'm talking about everyone apart from you. You guys are obviously, none of us were perfectly parented. None of us had perfect parents. And I know some of you think you might have had perfect parents, but I'm really sorry to let you know that you don't. We were made and born with an animal-level instinct, as geese can fly, as the saying goes, to receive love from a caregiver. It's a, a human instinct. To receive perfect, unadulterated love and acceptance, to receive guidance on the depth and breadth of the human experience. We were born with a perfect ability to, to express these emotions. There's now about 70 years of scientific research into this, and the brain science behind this is refuted less and less by the day. There used to be this whole sort of nature-nurture thing, and obviously there are genetic attributes, physical parts of the DNA that do affect our characters, but the vast majority of the components that make up who you are as you sit here today were determined by the level of emotional connection that you received within the first three years of your life. Almost irrefutably. It's a bit wild, isn't it? Before you knew anything about it. And we plan to start running um, courses on this type of thing as soon as we can. I'm hope hoping to run it, one of these um, in the autumn, or the fall. Maybe a little trial one. Um, so I'm resisting the urge to sort of delve into all of this as much as I would like to, because I love talking about it. Um, but in crude summary, crude summary, when we're born, ignoring the impact of the research into the impact of in utero stuff for a minute, when we're born, we're born with the ability to healthily express all feelings. And it is the comfort and the discomfort of our caregivers with those specific feelings that shapes our lifelong ability to process them move on from them, not be damaged by them, and very crucially, share them, just as we were made to do in loving relationship. I have done this training with wealthy central mummies, mummies in um, central London mummies, sipping their lattes, complaining about their lazy nannies, 
And I have done this uh, thing with the homeless parents on um, Skid Row. And holy moly, if you want to see the gospel with hands and feet, I encourage you to go and volunteer on the family's floor of Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row. It is an incredible organization. The point is, this has nothing to do with our parents' morals. This has nothing to do with how much money we had, how well we were brought up. This is not culturally affected. This has been researched on every single continent of the, on the globe. We are made to feel our feelings in connection to other people. To use the vernacular that we use, we are made to um, feel our feelings in connection with a caregiver who will show us that they are not overwhelmed with by being with us in our feelings. And this need that we have to have someone with us in our feelings never, ever goes away. I can't imagine a more striking example of what I'm talking about than right here in John's Gospel. Jesus knows Lazarus is coming back to life. He knows that what's happening here is only temporary. And then when he steps in, or checks in with his friend to see her pain, he stops who even knows how long for? Could have been seconds, minutes, it could have been hours. To be with her and weep with her. In verse 38, once more deeply moved, Jesus came to the tomb. Outraged again as he comes face to face with his ultimate opponent, death, symbolized in the tomb before him. He called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips, with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Out he comes. Utterly untouchable by Jewish law as a recently dead person. Here's Lazarus, a man tightly bound in burial cloth, walking out of a tomb. A visible sign to all those watching that convinced many of Jesus' true identity, but pushed others in the exact opposite direction. From that day on, they plotted to kill him. You can't make a claim like I'm the resurrection and the life, and then actually bring someone back to life and be left alone. This is where it's all been building to, pointing, foreshadowing, as it all does, to Jesus' own death and resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I offer these things. Nor did he say, I will be the resurrection and the life in the future. This is not a point about eternal life. He didn't say, I'm the resurrection and the life and so can you be. This is not about us overcoming death. This isn't anything to do with enlightenment or getting so used to our pain that we don't feel it anymore. This is actually where following Jesus takes us in a completely different direction to all of the spiritual, philosophical and religious ideas about life. Just like Ed said, um, during the worship. This is what he does. He does it for us. We're not working to figure out the meaning of life or how to make a pathway for ourselves to God. Jesus says, I am. I am the one you're looking for. Come to me and not only know, but experience life and its meaning. I am the resurrection and the life. You can have this life now. You don't have to wait until the end of human time in order to know God and his presence and his power. I'm conquering death. All instances of death and pain and suffering, and you can know what that means. Obviously, this isn't a claim that we're not going to die. We're all going to die. 
Lazarus went on to die again. Isn't that bonkers? The claim is that we're being offered something else completely when it comes to the death that is around us everywhere in this world. An invitation not just to let death and fear and darkness go, but to really live in this other way, where all things, even the unbearably pain things, are worked for the good of those who love him, where mourning is turned to dancing, Years eaten by locusts will be repaid, where giving money away gives us a different kind of wealth, where weakness is real strength, where there's unity and diversity. Serving is real gain. Love casts out fear. Where maybe, in this is the most upside-down idea of all, he can draw most near to us when we're in the most pain. We don't like this, do we? It's really quite uncomfortable. We are culturally repelled by the existence of pain. And yet we will all, undeniably, at some time in every single one of our lives, experience it. And that means we really need to work out what God thinks about our pain and suffering. We need to write that story and know what it says. Confabulation... um, to build a story around pain. It's what we all do. It actually helps us deal with it. It gives us a little dopamine hit. So we're all working to complete a narrative about what's going on. It's why we're so quick to blame. I'm sure you don't. I am very quick to blame when something goes wrong. I need to instantly find out who's responsible for it. But when we really suffer, we can very easily tell ourselves um, an old familiar story that God is punishing us judging us, because it closes the loop, if nothing else. And it's a very easy message to preach as a church leader. If controlling people is your jam, your suffering is the direct consequence of your sin. But there is a big issue of logic on this one, not just that Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry trying to take suffering away, but the real logical extension of that one is that if we're living perfectly in God's will, i.e. never subject to punishment of any punishment of any kind, then nothing bad will happen to us. Which obviously isn't the experience of even the most holy Christians any of us have ever known, including all the early church fathers and mothers. They suffered kind of a lot. And uh, Jesus. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this subject. It's Job. Um, It's a piece of wisdom literature. It's basically a refutation on the Proverbs general take that if you live a certain way, life will go well for you. Because the conclusion of the Bible is actually that our earthly life will be punctuated by suffering because the world is not operating as it should. So let us all agree now, shall we, that human suffering is not the result of God's punishment. That is the fictitious teaching of church tyrants, and we don't need to listen to that... um, I was going to swear. Bull anymore. Bull hockey. (laughs) Jesus rages at death. All instances, all outworkings, all death. Everything broken we ever feel... Just stop to consider that for the moment. He rages at this condition that we have. 
every instance of it. And as his followers, we're called to live like this too, to rage against it with him, to rage against pain, sickness, loss, homelessness, broken families, violence, division. To believe that there will be moments of supernatural intervention and to always ask for them, to always ask that he'll heal the sick, deliver the oppressed, and do it sensitively and and humbly. But to never stop asking because sometimes we see it happen. Understanding Jesus' humanity his need for these feelings, his expression of these feelings is so vital to understanding the beauty of who he is and how he understands every element of our condition. But it's not even half the story because his humanity isn't why we worship him. It's how we worship him. But we worship him because he's God and he has supernatural power and it is on offer to us through his spirit. There are things that might seem dead to you right now. It really felt like this was something that was happening during the worship, that God was really speaking about this stuff. So try, if you can, to go back there to what you were feeling as we sang those songs. What feels dead to you right now? an aspect of your health, your dreams, your happiness, your belief in intimate relationship and its availability to you, your belief that there's hope for you. Jesus has the power to resurrect those things. Jesus wants to resurrect those things. He hates that they feel dead and he rages against that pain. Um, I'd love if Pete and Paris, we'll just have you two, I think, could come and um, we'll just do a little, there's a verse of the second song that we sang that would just be brilliant. We'll stand in a sec, um, but feel free to sing or not sing, whatever you want to do, but I would encourage encourage you to open yourself again. The early years attachment stuff that I mentioned earlier, I know it can sound a little fatalistic, It definitely isn't, even in the science part of it, psychologically, just understanding these things helps us unfreeze them and move on from them. And obviously psychotherapy and CBT is absolutely amazing. But we have something else. We have a God who heals even our minds, even our experiences, even our very neural pathways. I have seen it happen. I have known it happen. I have experienced it. Martha was Jesus' best friend. And in her agony, she still knew exactly who Jesus was. She had no shame or lack of humility in her approach to him. I know you can do it, Jesus. Part of his answer is, the one who believes in me will live. I'd encourage you now as we sing this again, or don't sing, whatever you want to do, to just have a go at believing it again. The one who believes in me will live.